Hi, it's good to be back here in Grace Leith. Yep, I'm plugged in. Um, it's a bit like Grand Theft Auto getting here from the other side of Edinburgh. Uh, I didn't steal any cars on the way here. Uh, we're okay. Can we open our Bibles, please? The uh, book of Exodus, chapter 15. Chapter 16, sorry. Exodus 16. the story of the children of Israel. That's a bunch of folk who were in prison in Egypt and God took them out of Egypt to the promised land. But in between Egypt and the promised land, they had 40 years in the wilderness and they had to eat something and God supplied manna. Manna uh, is often known as like, like bread. It was a little bit like Frosties, as, as you see at the end of the chapter. And quail. Quail is a little bird. Uh, you're Edinburgh people, you probably eat smoked quail every night, just a little... I'm, I'm from Paisley, we didn't eat smoked quail much. Um, so it's Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is linked to Mount Sinai, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I do apologize, I'm reading a different version to the your screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. We'll read that one. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, let you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke, to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, Jew lay around the camp. And when the Jew had gone up, 
there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its, na its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna, till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The 
grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. Well, what are we going to make of a passage like that? A phrase that's come to me recently is, we can either eat or heat, we can't do both. There seems to be a crisis in stuff that's available, and the price of food has skyrocketed, so I'm told. Sunflower oil apparently is going very, very short, and apparently the folk in Morningside are in meltdown because the supplies of balsamic vinegar are almost exhausted. How will they survive in these days? Food provision, what we eat, is a big thing in our modern economy. Do you know that in uh, the world, no, in the UK, 10 million tonnes of food are wasted each day? Three other semi-useless statistics will follow. One in every five shopping bags are wasted. So you imagine going to Tesco, you can almost put every fifth one in the bin because it'll end up in a landfill. And here is the most amazing one as far as I was concerned that 24 million slices of bread in the UK are wasted each day. I I thought that was quite mind-boggling and really that's a lot of toast ending up in the bin. And of course in the world a third of all food globally is wasted. Now we cannot be flippant, these are serious things and there is a world food shortage. I wonder how, though, even here in the UK, is our food shortage and our attitude towards food related to our spiritual lives. The kind of subliminal, unexpressed feeling that, well, it will go on forever. There is no end to this. We are king and the world will never, ever be short. I think, as we'll see, that that is linked up not just with our economic views, but even bigger and even more important, our views of God. We've forgotten where it all comes from, and I think that emerges from, frankly, a spiritual bankruptcy. What's happening here? Well, I told you before that the people of God were basically in prison in the land of Egypt. They were persecuted, they were exiles there, and the Egyptians were incredibly cruel to them. And remember the Moses, the, the hero of this book, uh, uh, hears from God and God says, let my people go. So they are taken out from Egypt and they are uh, sent to the promised land. And we've all heard uh, that phrase in, in popular literature, we have seen the promised land. So this passage here, uh, chapter 16, is just a month after they had left Egypt. Now, of course, what we'll see also later is that the hero of the book is not Moses. The hero of the book is Jesus. It's not good, usually, to be obsessed with something, unless it's something fairly positive. If you're new to Grace Church Leith here, I hope that there's one obsession that you will come away with, and that is, folk will say, you folk are obsessed with Jesus. You talk about him all the time. You seem to see him everywhere. And we will see that the great hero of the book of Exodus is not Moses, but the hero of the book of Exodus is Jesus. And he is the ultimate hero. He is the quintessential superhero who really trumps every other major figure in world history. So what's happening here, the newness of freedom has worn off and the people here 
are grumbling. Our main theme this morning is God's provision, and I want us to notice four things in the passage about God's provision, not of, as it were, uh, how many, 24 million slices of bread per day, but God's bigger provision. So four things about God's provision. The first thing we notice in the passage is that God's provision arises out of grumbling. There's an awful lot of grumbling going on in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that. The people are getting hungry, and when folk get hungry, they tend to moan. Indeed, there's three sets of grumbling here. There's one in the previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 24. There's a bit of grumbling in chapter 16. And there's grumbling also in chapter 17, uh, verse 2. So we see here in verse 2 and verse 3, the whole community were grumbling against Egypt. So this wasn't a minority report. The whole people, as a collective whole, were complaining because Moses had led them out of one dire situation and here they were in the desert and they were absolutely starving. Now, it's some logistical exercise to feed several million people. This was not something that just happened automatically. There was an awful lot of food to be provided. Any of you who have been involved in catering for any decent number know that it really is complex. And the quantities soon multiply very, very quickly. But here we find grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. In fact, seven times in five verses, trust me, it's true, seven times in five verses there is reference to grumbling. I wonder, do we recognize that spirit within ourselves? Self-awareness is something that's really quite difficult to get. And are we kind of growing as we grow old in patience? Or is there within us a grumbling spirit? Now, I've reached the age in life when really I think most folk expect me to grumble. I'm just a grumpy old man. And uh, I find myself a kind of Victor Meldrew attitude towards life. I moan about the potholes in Edinburgh. Uh, I grumble all the time. I, I grumble about the semi-disastrous result uh, Rangers uh, th- this week. Everything really makes me grumble. I get annoyed very, very easily. But that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing as we grow old. Here is the paradox. Uh, there is a perverse enjoyment in grumbling. Thomas Manton, who was an old writer, said this. He says, censuring, that's a a kind of old-fashioned word for grumbling. He says, the censuring is a pleasing sin, extremely compliant with nature. In in other words, it resonates with with, with a sinful, self-centered being. and, And nothing networks so quickly as a negative spirit. Marilyn Dietrich says this, Grumbling is the death of love. And so this provision that God is about to make is in the context of all these people who are grumbling. Now you notice some of the features. We would be better off dead, it said. Others said, I wish that we had never left Egypt. We were better off under the 
oppressive regime of Pharaoh. Uh, we, we really, looking back, we wish we had never been saved. I wonder, do we again detect that desperate spirit in our own minds? Not just grumbling about the price of petrol, not just grumbling about the quality of Greg's sausage rolls, not just grumbling about something that's fairly inconsequential, but grumbling against God. And especially those of us who are Christians, this is serious. What they're saying was, verse 3, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Are they serious? If only we'd never been redeemed. The, you see, the thing about slavery is there's, there's a security in slavery, isn't there? There's something that really appeals to being a slave. You don't have to make any decisions. You don't have to bear any personal responsibility. You are just part of the machine. Now these folk have been redeemed and, uh, and they can't handle it anymore. And listen, they seem to have forgotten the goodness of God. They seem to have forgotten that God had made the bitter waters of Mara, there's a story before this, that he had made these waters sweet. Indeed, chapter 15 is a song of Moses. It is a song of triumph. God had split the Red Sea. God had redeemed all these people. They had had an amazing experience. God was good to them. But they had forgotten. And so the song of Moses in chapter 15, the song of Moses and Miriam, turns into this moan of whinging here in chapter 16. Now, they blame the leaders. Often that's one of the things about the leadership of the people of God. Folk tend to blame you for everything. But verse 8 says that their complaints were really against God. Is God putting the finger on a whinging spirit in us? I know he's certainly putting the finger on a whinging spirit on me. And this forgetting the triumph and the glory and the grace of redemption. So that's the first thing I'm noting here, that God's provision uh, ar ar arises out of grumbling. There's a second thing that strikes me here. Not only God's provision arises out of grumbling, God's provision is always in the context of grace. Uh, if we were in this situation as a provider, God has provided for them, God has redeemed them, God has saved them, and they complain. What would we do? Our immediate reaction was, well, for, forget it. You know, just, just go your, your own way. We would say, no way. They say, you've failed us. But we read there, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. They are mean to God, and God's response is, I'm going to rain down bread. I'm going to give them so much food. Verse 11 is even bigger than that. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them they're finished. No. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. That's God. 
They're absolutely horrible to God. They're disrespectful of God. They're ungrateful to God. And God says, here's, here's bread. God said, here's meat. God says, I'm going to be gracious to you. He answers their sneering unbelief with love. That's what we call grace. God's undeserved love towards us. And this morning, all of us have experienced and all of us are being offered grace, God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, God's sheer delight. And notice what the language is there. I will rain down bread from heaven in verse 4. I had a friend who's now passed on and he was one of the meanest people I ever knew. When I say mean, I mean stingy. Every Christmas was exactly the same. It's a true story. Every Christmas was the same. He had two brothers, himself and two brothers, and he would buy a Dundee cake. If you know what a Dundee cake is, people of a certain age will know. Cake with, I think it's raisins and kind of nuts in it. And he would cut the Dundee cake in half, and he would give one uh, half to one brother and one half to the other brother. Apologies to any of you who give a half a dindy cake to your own siblings. God doesn't do half cakes. God pours out mercy after mercy. The old hymn, he gives and gives and gives again. He's not stingy. The words of grace in verse 4 and verse 11. God often works like that in our anger he breaks through with grace. When we shake our fists at God, God smiles at us and blesses us. There was a well-known writer called C.S. Lewis. Many of you will have heard of C.S. Lewis. He was married to a lady called Joy Davidman. Joy Davidman uh, was raised as a militant atheist. She was raised in an atmosphere of cynicism and antagonism towards Christians. She saw religion as, quote, a haven for the neurotic, and folk who were religious only had ideas, and I'm quoting her, which only the ill-educated would believe. That was the atmosphere Joy Davidman was raised in. Her first husband had mental health problems, and one day he went missing. And then he phoned her. And he phoned her at the end of his tether in despair. He said he was losing his mind. And then he put the phone down. Deadness. Joy Davidman writes in her journal, That day, remember she was an atheist, hated God. That day, she said, there was another person in the room. A presence so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play. I think I must have been the world's most astonished atheist. My awareness of Christ's presence was not conjured up to bolster me about my husband. No, it was terror, terror and ecstasy, repentance and rebirth. In other words, Joy Davidman is saying that that point when really in my life I resented God, didn't believe in God, and even if he did exist, I didn't like him. He showed up. And he was with me. That's grace. Are you experiencing grace in your life just now? 
Maybe you and God are not in great terms at the moment. Maybe you feel like one of the psalmists who said, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And yet in our almost antipathy and sometimes hatred of God, God comes to us like he came to the children of Israel to pour out good things. God is good, better than we deserve. And that takes away any sense of entitlement. God's provision then is in the context of a grumbling spirit. God's provision always arises out of grace. And the third thing in this passage is that God's provision is purposeful. You see, God wasn't simply giving them food. It wasn't some kind of celestial Tesco meal deal which was being replaced uh, every single day. It wasn't just some great logistical miracle. There's a lot more going on here. You see, God tested these people. There was lots of rules, wasn't there? They were just to gather enough manna and quail for that day. day. And on the Sabbath, they were to gather double the day before the Sabbath, the Friday. They were to gather twice as much because they weren't allowed to pick it up on the Sabbath, which for them was a Saturday. So God gave them all these rules to test them. That's why this point is that God's provision is purposeful. There's a test. Even verse 4 says that in this way, the people are to go each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. You see again, or you've seen it previously in chapter 15, verse 25, uh, God says there the Lord put them to the test. A test. Here's the thing about God's tests. Normally when we go through a test, it's to see whether we, we know enough. When God puts his people, us, if we're Christians, through a test, if he tells us to do something difficult and something that would demand an element of trust, like just gather enough for the day, you know these um, lateral flow tests that used to be free. Um, someone I know, hearing that they were soon not going to be made available, walked around about 10 different pharmacists taking a free test from each pharmacy because this person knew that one day that they would dry up. So they've got a stack of uh, uh, lateral flow uh, I was going to say pregnancy kits, uh, 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 COVID kits in, in, in their home. They, they just stacked them up. They, they just didn't trust the government. Rightly or wrongly. Here we find a similar thing. Aren't they going to trust God? God tests them. Now, when God tests us, it's not to bring us down. It's to build us up. So, God's tests like, like, like a muscle. Languages are really interesting. If, if you're bilingual, if you speak English, it's absolutely true. You, you develop one set of the muscles. If you speak French as well, it could be any other language. If you're really fluent, you'll actually develop, you use different muscles. 
So uh, if if you're you know, if you're a fluent French speaker, but you, you've been speaking English and, and you go off to, to Paris for the week, so some folk report that, that their jaws are actually quite sore after a few days speaking French because you're, you're just using different muscles. That's almost what a test is, is to build up our, our, our sense of, of muscularity, is, is, is to build things up. Qualities, spiritual gifts, don't always come as a prepackaged gift. They are developed through testing, like anger. Do you have an anger problem? It's not going to be resolved overnight. Do you have a patience problem? You don't simply go to God and punch in the patience code, and patience is downloaded into your system. It's not the way it works. It's like moving these muscles. It's like changing day by day. And that's why God is giving them, giving them the, this test. Do you trust me enough each day for your daily needs? Do you trust me that this Sabbath principle is good for you? They were taken to the very edge of need. God tested them. Are you being, am I being tested by God? Is God putting us through things that we say, oh, that's tough. But he's not trying to fail us. He's trying to build us up. He's trying to get these spiritual muscles that we don't normally use into use. Is God always good? Is he good when we're going through testing times? Is he good when we're going through non-testing times? Fourthly, finally, very, very quickly. God's provision does not get bigger than Jesus. Where is Jesus in this chapter? Where is Jesus in this whole story? Well, the Bible's divided into two bits, to make a long story short. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. When I was at school, folks said, well, the Old Testament was before Jesus, and the New Testament was after Jesus. No, the whole book, Genesis, which is the first book of the, of the Bible, right through to Revelation, it's all about Jesus, and he is the hero. And God wants subsequent generations to, to know this. Excuse me. In this chapter here, you find it towards the end. Look at verse 33. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for a generation. God wanted Moses to get a bit of the manna and to keep it. If you read the Bible, if you read in John's Gospel, John chapter 6, there's a reference to this actual chapter. And those folk, not, I'm sure not everybody here knows the Bible well. Some do, some don't. But in John chapter 6, you read there of Jesus. And it says that God gave them manna, bread from heaven to eat. But then Jesus said, that's all very well, but I am the bread of heaven. And this is what they, they were to remember. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. And he went further. He said, this bread gives life to the world. And he went further. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. This is a huge claim. Moses was told to take the manna and he was to put it in the most holy place. It was to be put in the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place of all, under the atonement cover. 
there's a sermon there in itself. But sacrifice and bread came together. This passage is speaking to us about Jesus. He is the bread of heaven. He is the answer. The thing about Christianity is it makes huge claims. It makes huge claims about Jesus. I visited somewhere recently and I picked up this leaflet about, and, and the article was, What is Christianity? And, and, and the article said, you know, that Christianity where people who followed Jesus, he was a great freedom fighter, he was a great political liberator, he was an amazing person. No! He's the son of God. He's the solution to all the world's problems. He's the bread of heaven. Verse 10. What does God say to Moses? He says to Moses that you have to look towards the desert. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israel community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. We live in a desert. What this church is doing in its collective voice is saying, okay, folks, let's look at the desert. But verse 10, as you look at the desert, you will see the glory of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord is encapsulated in Jesus. One more minute. Psalm, 9, Psalm 78 says that the people there spoke against the Lord and they asked the question, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? It's a really legitimate question. Psalm 78, can God really spread a temple in the wilderness? As we look back in life, as we look back in this world, as we look back in the mess, can God really provide for us? We look at the desert of Ukraine. We look at the desert of rocketing cost of living costs. We look at the desert of our own emotional fragility. We look at the desert of our own sinfulness and our own separation from God. And we can say, can God really feed us in the midst of this? It may not be the best theological language on earth, but you can bet your last dollar in that or pound to put it into context. You can rely on him, the bread of heaven. In a minute, Arthur's going to tell us something about this bread and the symbolism of it. God's provision is absolutely amazing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, for its power, for your provision. Speak with us now and be with us in all things. Amen.